Uh, we need your quickening grace, Heavenly Father. Uh, we pray that through your indwelling spirit, you would open our eyes and open our ears to see and hear the truth. And as Spencer's already prayed, I pray that we would press it into our hearts and put it into practice, especially this morning as we hear David do this very thing. Uh, we need your help to do this. Uh, Father, we commit ourselves to you in this time. Pray that you'd be honored and glorified. I ask that you'd strengthen my voice and clear my mind and enable me to faithfully proclaim your truth. And we ask this Savior in your name. Amen. There was a very large uh, fulfillment firm in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Illinois uh, and it, this firm sends out uh, magazine renewal and expiration notices. You're probably familiar. I've gotten several of these uh, through the years. Tell you your magazine is about to expire and are pressing you to renew it. Well, one day this company's computer malfunctioned. And a rancher in Powder Bluff, Colorado, received 9,734 separate mailings informing him that his subscription to National Geographic had expired. He dropped what he was doing and traveled 10 miles to the nearest U.S. post office where he sent his money for a renewal along with a note that said, I give up. Send me your magazine. <laughs> that kind of response is similar to the kind that the Lord wants from all those who hear his word. The Lord tells us in James, Spencer alluded to this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This response to God's word is the kind of response that David displays in these last three verses of, of Psalm 19 uh, this morning. In verses 12 through 14, we see David humbly surrender himself to the revelation of God found in Scripture. He's already described, turn it on, he's already described um, general revelation or natural revelation, called that because it is the way God reveals himself through nature, through creation. And then last Lord's Day, he described special revelation to us. Uh, some call it specific revelation. Uh, it, this was in verses 7 through 12. This is the way that God reveals himself through scripture, through his word, through the Bible. Now David goes on in this final portion of Psalm 19 to demonstrate the response to revelation. Uh, the receptivity that we should have for the word of God. In these final three verses... David's going to display six ways that we should respond to the word of God, to the revelation of God through his word. And the first way that he displays to us is uh, we respond to, the, to God's word with the correct posture. There is a specific posture that uh, we're called to have towards scripture and David describes this first in verse 11, so just jump back a verse. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And then down to verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Our posture toward God's word should be the posture of a servant. Our posture towards God's revelation should be humble receptivity to what our master has to say. As Samuel uh, said, speak, Lord, for your servant ears. There's nothing tricky about this Hebrew term. There's no um, 
wonderful nuance that I can point out to you this morning. Uh, it simply refers to a household slave, a bond servant. Uh, this is defined as one who's owned by another uh, for service until sold to someone else or until he works his way out of slavery. And this is the position of every believer. And so if you're sitting here this morning and claim uh, to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, the New Testament calls you a servant a bondservant. Listen to Paul. He's writing to actual household servants in this portion of Scripture. And he says this in Ephesians chapter 5, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, uh, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as uh, people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Paul's telling these household slaves that they're really slaves of Christ. He is their true master and the one they must answer to. But just a few verses later, Paul says the same thing to, uh, to their masters. He says this, uh, um, uh, masters, let me get it, I can't find it. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality uh, with him. The masters of these household slaves have the same master as the slaves, Jesus Christ. And, and it's not just master and slave in the New Testament we're talking about. This is the position of every child of God as well, whether you're a household slave or not. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. The true owner, the true master of both master and servant in the ancient world was Jesus Christ. And the true owner, the true master of both employer and employee in this era is Christ. Every believer, everyone who knows Christ as his Savior and Lord becomes a servant of Christ at the very moment he or she becomes a Christian. We too are slaves of Christ. Has anyone ever told you this before? That you're in service? That you have a master? That you have a Lord? And you're in service to this master. His name is Jesus Christ. Paul, again, brings up this image of servant and master in Romans chapter 6 and he says this but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness so we see David demonstrate this posture towards Scripture. He calls himself a servant both in verse 11 and 13. And our posture towards Revelation should be the same humble receptivity. What does my master have to say? What are his instructions to me? We saw and read how Eli, the high priest, had instructed Samuel to display this posture toward the Lord, to display the same humble receptivity toward the word of God. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I wonder if that's how you read Scripture. That when you open the word of God, you begin by saying, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Because the God of heaven is speaking to you. 
we commonly hear of people who have thoughts, well, you know, surely that doesn't apply to me. What if your master said it? There's an old saying that was um, popular when I was growing up. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And R.C. Sproul has corrected that misspoken saying. God said it. That settles it. Well, this is how we're called to respond as a servant. Speak, Lord. Your servant is, is waiting to hear. I'm waiting to carry out what you want. There's another response I want you to see here in, in uh, the last few verses of Psalm 19. And that's uh, we respond to the word by accepting a proclamation. Uh, David makes a proclamation in verse 12. It's really the Lord making a proclamation through his servant David. What proclamation am I talking about? Look at verse 12 with me. It begins, Who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? I, I put it to you that is a very simple statement uh, that has earth-shaking implications for you and me, as well as the entire human race. It's not really a question, is it? We call that a rhetorical question, the way he's asked, and that means he's not looking for an answer. It's really a statement of fact. It could be translated, errors. Who can discern them? Meaning no one can really perceive the extent of their sin. And the reason that you and I will never be able to grasp this proclamation, grasp the full extent of our sin, is explained in the next phrase. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And by hidden faults, David's not referring to those sins that we attempt to hide from other people or hide from the Lord if such a thing were possible. This is, think about how David tried to hide his sin with Bathsheba. That's, that's not it. That's not the kind of hidden he's referring to, but by hidden faults, David means faults or sins that he can't see in himself. He's admitting that he was blind to the extent of his own sinfulness. I want to put the bug in your ear that it, perhaps you don't know the extent of your own sinfulness. Now, you might think you have a pretty good idea. You might have a poor self-image I know exactly how, how much I stink. I know exactly how rotten I am. Except for the fact that that's kind of self-absorption and, and a form of pride. Or you might think, I'm okay. I can't think of anything wrong with me. I'm doing fine. Well then, <laughs> to both of you I say, you probably cannot grasp the full extent of your own sinfulness. Because this is how God sees it. One pastor says, sin may be present, but we may not identify or perceive it. There are wrongs that we simply have not detected. They've not come up on our conscious radar. I'm simply not sharp enough to see and expose all my guilt. The truth is, you have no idea how sinful you are. And Jeremiah puts it out in print, uh, this very thought, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, how, how then am I supposed to be aware of these hidden faults, these sins that I'm blind to? We become aware of our faults by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Uh, listen to Paul, his experience in Romans chapter 7. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And two verses later, he adds this, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and, and I died. As Paul read the Ten Commandments, one of which says, you shall not covet. 
You shall not desire something your neighbor has or something God has not given you. When Paul read, you shall not covet, his sin nature was aroused. And all of a sudden, he began to covet all kinds of things. It's like that sign you see, keep off the grass. Which, I mean, this is my own warped view of things. When I see that sign, what's, what do I want to do? Well, step on the grass, you know. I'm, I'm a fallen man. <laughs> and, you know, we knew that. <laughs> but we didn't know how much. And so the word of God revealed to Paul just how sinful he was and prone to desire things that God hadn't given him. Coveting was hidden until the word of God brought it to light. One pastor illustrates this. Um, point like this. He says, on a warm summer night, my wife and I were traveling in our car with Micah, our three-year-old son, who sat in the back seat. After many miles of driving in the darkness, we came to a stop in a remote area. The, the brightness of the traffic light revealed all of the dirt, dead bugs, and insects on our windshield. Micah said, look how dirty. My wife and I didn't think much of his comment until a moment later when we drove on away from the light and back into the darkness. Upon re-entering the darkness, we could no longer see the mess on our windshield and Micah quickly piped up and said, now the glass is clean. The pastor adds, before the law came, the dirt within us hid under the darkness. But when God gave the law, its light shined on the windshield of our hearts and revealed the filth of sin we'd collected on our journey. The law then is a light that shows us how sinful we really are. It cannot cleanse us or make us whole, but it does starkly highlight the true situation of our souls and thus can lead us to Christ. But we need the law to perform that very function in our lives, don't we? We go through life oblivious to the bugs on our windshield until we pull up on Sunday morning, so to speak, under the traffic light of Scripture, and, and all of a sudden we see these bugs. Or sit down in the morning to read the Word with your cup of coffee, and, and wow, how did that get there? These things that aren't pleasing to the Lord, as well as it points to what does please Him. And it's for this very reason, because we don't see what's there, that we join David in his prayer at the very end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me see the bugs on the windshield, Lord. And through your gracious spirit scrub them away in the atoning death of, of your sacrifice we respond to the, to the word of God accepting this proclamation errors who can discern them we, uh, we respond knowing that we're blind to the extent sin has affected us and understand we need the word of God to reveal the dirt on the windshield well, this third way, there's a third way uh, that we should respond to Revelation. From this proclamation, we move on to, to see a, a progression. We should respond to the word, understanding and aware of the progression sin takes. And David asked the Lord to keep him from sin's slippery slope in these verses, I want you to see the progression that he describes here, something that we too should be aware of. It begins in verse 12. Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, which we just described. Uh, hidden faults is the first thing in this progression. Sins we're unaware of, uh, sins we commit not knowing what the word says about them, since we commit because we're fallen creatures prone to wander, the law of Moses called these unintentional sins. Uh, next is, the next step in the progression is 
presumptuous sins. In verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Uh, presumptuous sins are, are sins committed knowingly and deliberately. And, and we understand that these actions are wrong and that aren't pleasing to the Lord, but we commit them anyway. In uh, the law of Moses, those are referred to as sins of the high hand, meaning that they're audacious sins committed in arrogance. Uh, the ESV says presumptuous sins here. This is what Eli's sons had done. And recall that the Lord told Samuel, these sins won't be atoned for. These are sins that get the better of us. They gain mastery over us. They begin to rule our lives. They dominate our lives, which is what David prays against. Let them not have dominion over me. These are sins that continually practiced become sinful habits, perhaps even addictions. And David is deeply concerned with this second type of sin, and, and so he prays for self-control. He doesn't want these audacious sins to dominate his life. Paul, Paul addresses this in Romans 6, 7, and 8, those, those all-important chapters that address our, our growth in holiness. And, and Paul tells us in Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. So these presumptuous sins, audacious sins, intentional sins, which are truthfully most of the sins you and I commit, they're the second step in this slippery slope, this progression or degression or downward grade you might call it but finally now we get to the third stage in this downward trend of, of sin and its effect and look at the end of verse 13 then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression this is sin in its most serious form the term transgression refers to an open act of rebellion it's it's not just audacious sin this is sin that defies God and denies his right to rule over our lives. This is open revolt against his authority. This, this sin might even lead us to the sin of apostasy, of, of denying our faith and falling away from the Lord. But there is one word here, one very important word, one, I would say, crucial word that we have to stop and take note of. It's a critical word that prevents this last step of great transgression. It, toward the middle of verse 13, look in your copy of the word, it says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The word then stops it in its tracks. The word then is the emergency break, the, uh, the, the parachute cord. We... We avoid great transgression. We avoid flaming out. We avoid falling away by dealing with sin in its earliest form and not letting it get to this point. Now, trace this again. Look at verse 12 with me. Follow along, please. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. These things I can't see. Bring them to light, Lord. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Sins that I know are wrong, things I know are wrong, but I do them anyway. Lord, let them not have dominion over me. Then, if you keep me from that, then I will be spared this. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Then I will remain untainted by the great life-altering, reputation-damaging, and Christ-denying sins. Let me take a, a stab in the dark here. I would hazard a guess that nobody came this morning thinking, I think it's time for a major blowout in my life. I'm being facetious, of course. No one wants that. No one wants open shame from your church family or even public humiliation if it, if it goes that far. 
No one wants to completely rip apart their lives, rip apart their family. No one wants to, I don't think, blatantly and, and purposefully damage the reputation of Christ in this community. And what this passage has to say to us is that there really are no blowouts, so to speak. Great transgressions begin with a slow leak. Great transgressions begin with those sins hidden from your eyes but obvious to the Lord. Great transgression begins with a casual indifference towards sin. Great transgression begins with an attitude of of a relaxed attitude toward personal purity and holiness. And did you pick up David's tone in these verses? He has, you know, I want to call it anxiety. It's a holy anxiety. It's not a sinful anxiety. He's really deeply concerned with his personal purity And he wants to deal with it at this early stage so he doesn't get to where it's a great act of rebellion. I don't think any of us plan on getting to the end of verse 13. I don't think we plan on great transgression. I don't think we plan on a blowout, but it's because we ignore the first step in verse 12 that we often wind up there. There's something going on. I don't know what it is, but there perhaps is a sin you're allowing to continue in your life right this minute. And your, your attitude toward it is a shrug of the shoulders. You don't much care. It's no big deal. Practically everybody does this. Doesn't James kind of refer to the same kind of progression? I think he does, and here's what he says. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Wow, this is an amazing statement. We also attribute, almost always attribute temptation to Satan. And I grant you that he he could be behind a lot of temptations, many, but here it says... Look, don't even bring him up. You've got enough trouble with your own sin nature, this says in this first sentence. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. There's an enemy in the, in the, in the ranks. You have, you have that bent in your soul for sin. And look at how it continues. Then desire when it has conceived. So this is, not a, this is not an overnight thing, you get the idea. Uh, when sin is conceived, it gives birth to death. That's nine months. And so James is saying, James 2 is referring to kind of a process that sin takes. It starts with just a little, just a little seed and it grows into a loud screaming child. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that means spiritual death, of course, uh, and perhaps even physical death. So one scholar, one very godly scholar, said it like this, Inasmuch as David, who here calls himself the servant of God and who truly was, confesses his need of divine restraint so that he may not boldly and impudently break the law of God and fall into transgressions. It is clear that no one should so far presume on his own virtue or strength as to regard himself beyond the possibility of the worst falls. Did you hear that? I'm, uh, every one of us needs to hear this. You godly saint who is up there in years, whatever that means to you, and you younger saints who maybe have just over a decade under your belt, 
It is clear that no one should, should so far presume on his own virtue or strength as to regard himself beyond the possibility of the worst falls. So back in the, uh, back in the 80s, uh, or whenever that era was where major public scandals were happening, um, I'm thinking of Jim and Tammy Baker and the horrendous nightmare that was for the name of Christ no matter what their theological position was, and also of Jimmy Swaggart, a very public fall. Um, and so I was attending seminary, and, you know, you understand that a lot of young seminary students are uh, really a, just a bunch of nimrods. And, uh, um, boy, we, we were. And... A lot of guys were walking around saying, wow, that'll never happen to me. Never happened to me. And I had this godly professor. I happened to go to church with him. His name was Dr. Harold Honer. And he, he began his class that day saying, you know, I hear a lot of unhealthy remarks that we look at these things and, and we proudly say that'll never happen to me. And what we should say is, that could happen to me. That could happen to me. So, I, you know, I'm not trying to be heavy with you this morning, but I want you to, man, we could be talking about some really serious stuff in your life. You know, we're talking about marriages and the state of your children and, you know... We're talking about, you know, you could be talking about jail time, depending on how bad this sin gets. Uh, we could talk, talk, be talking about years of regret and sorrow for how badly, and as the book of Proverbs says, you'll say, oh, what a fool I was. And you can stop it this morning and prevent it from happening by simply asking the Lord, Oh, Lord, declare me innocent from hidden faults. In other words, reveal them to me so I can confess them to you and they can be cleansed from me by the blood of Christ. And be concerned about, about the, 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 those hidden things and be like David be, be, be a little anxious about the state of your soul and, and about its condition and whether it's pure because you let those go and you, you suddenly you're committing presumptuous sins wow I can't believe I did that how am I capable of that? Well, we are. And, and if we don't stop it there, then before we know it, it could be that we hit this third great transgression, the, the blowout, the, uh, the, the drastic change in your life circumstances David himself experienced. We respond aware of this progression, alert to sin's slippery slope. It is slippery. That's a cliche, I know, but, but it is a slippery slope. Proverbs says it too. We are conscious of the way sin grows to take possession of us and winding up in great transgression. All through these verses, though, there's, there's, a, there's a, really a fourth way to respond to Revelation. Uh, it's, it's not in just one verse. We'll see it throughout. At least I want to point it out to you here. The next response that he describes that we see just, just weaving in and it's, itself in and out is prayer. And, and I mean prayer for the grace of God. This whole time, he's praying, and he's been expressing his dependence on God and, and his need for grace to surrender to the Word and, and to be obedient to the Word. Look at verse 12 again. 
Who can discern his errors? Declare. That's a, uh, that's a, uh, it's a request. It's a plea. In Hebrew, it's called a jessive. It's a, it's a urgent um, request. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Of course, after I've confessed them and you've cleansed me. And then the next one, keep back. Draw me in, pull in the reins. Uh, another urgent plea. And then verse 14, let the words of my mouth. There's another uh, plea for him to restrain him. Uh, it's just woven throughout here. His, David is conscious of how desperately he needs God to act first so that he can obediently respond to the word. It's not down to you and your willpower. Praise God. It's him graciously enabling you to carry out what he commands you to do. David is conscious of this and his need. We hear his, this need just screaming out from these from these uh, just of words, these pleas. And, and we hear it throughout Scripture. This is not the only place where you hear this kind of uh, uh, dependence on God's grace. You see it all the way through Psalm 51, that great psalm of repentance after David had been confronted by Nathan about his affair with Bathsheba and so David prays uh, this in Psalm 51 create in me a clean heart O God and renew a right or steadfast spirit within me restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit do you, do you hear it there Lord I, you have to you have to give me the will to obey you. You have to graciously quicken me so I can do what you call me to do. Psalm 19 is another great place to see this. Uh, the writer says in, in verse 4, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. There's a saying Holy anxiety that David is displaying in verses 12 through 14. And my favorite word is, oh. Do you, do you hear the man and how badly he wants this? Oh, oh, that my ways would be steadfast. And here again, oh God, I know I cannot do this on my own. You must do it in me. It is, I think, one of the most liberating things you can ever come to realize as a believer. That you must be given grace to obey. It never resided within you to do that. Never. It's His grace that enables us. Listen to Jeremiah. Even Jeremiah says it. I know, O Lord, that the way of a man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Lord, it's not in me to do this. You have to correct me and bring me to it. Paul, again, Paul says this, uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In, in other words, respond obediently to the word of God and, and carry it out, carry it to completion. And then the next verse for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both in the willing of it and the doing of it, he works in you. Ah, this is great. 
And we hear this throughout Scripture. God's people pleading for His grace to carry out what He's commanded. This is so can be so freeing to you that what He's called you to to remain sexually pure before marriage, He will provide enough grace to carry out. You might not believe that, but He, he says it. It's Him at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. His enabling grace is required for any believer to carry out any one of His precepts. Any one of His precepts requires His grace to work in you and enable you to do it. Otherwise, it's your work and not His. This is a wonderful quote. It's brought to my attention by John Piper. There is a saint in the early church um, who expressed it this way. And he, his prayer was, uh, St. Augustine uh, said, Command what you wish, but give what you command. That's what we're talking about. Command what you wish, but give what you command. Give grace. Give me grace to carry out what you command, to fulfill what your word calls me to. And so we respond to Revelation with this attitude of prayer. And it is prayer that God would quicken us with His grace to, to give us life and make us willing and able to obey. There's a fifth way we respond. The fifth way we respond to Revelation is by, by allowing it to seep into our lives and change our practice or practices. We conform the way we live to what the Word describes. And we're talking about specific actions here, friends. Our specific actions must conform to the Word of God. Look at verse 14 now. David says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Again, this is really him praying here. Uh, in fact, these very words uh, probably launched a thousand sermons this very morning from pulpits all across America. At least we could hope that. It's perhaps one of the well -known, most well-known prayers in the entire book of Psalms. But it's meant to be applied far more broadly than just pastors on a Sunday morning praying this before they get up and speak or praying this as they speak. As David continues this attitude of prayer we see through these verses, he asks the Lord that two areas of his life in particular, that two specific practices would conform to what his word commands. And these are perhaps the two most basic areas of Christian living. Our speech and our minds. It's clear from God's word that one of the most dangerous areas of life and one of the most essential things for a believer to gain mastery over is his or her speech. What they say. It is uh, safe to make this conclusion just from the amount of space Scripture uses to address our speech. Uh, for example, the book of Proverbs is fully perforated with verses about how we talk. And an eye-opening exercise for you might be to read through Proverbs with a, either a highlighter or, or colored pencil and, and mark every verse that refers to speech. And depending on what color you use, you would be shocked at the number of times in each chapter the Lord refers to the way we talk in the book of Proverbs, again and again and again. 
This is driven home that this is a major area we should pay attention to is driven home further by how speech is addressed in the book of James. Why, consider this, conquer your speech by the power of God's grace and His Spirit working in you and you'll be able to exercise self-control over your whole body. What? You get control by God's grace. It's not you getting control. It's by His Spirit working in you. You get control of what comes out your mouth. And you'll be able to control your entire body. Listen to James. Uh, and again, God's speaking through James. For we all stumble in many ways. And all God's people said, Amen. I, well, I know. <laughs> I know that's right. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, meaning mature, spiritually mature, not perfect, perfect. Able also to bridle his whole body. Wow. So if you're trying to discipline yourself in one specific area, you're trying to exercise self-control, and maybe you should back the truck up and start with the way you talk. I've shared how difficult and how much I've had to change in this very area of my speech. Judging from just the amount of space that Scripture gives to our words, it is safe to conclude that our speech is a basic and essential area of Christian growth. Uh, allow the Spirit of God to master your tongue and you are well on your way to becoming a mature man or woman of God. But failing to conform your speech to the pattern found in Scripture might indicate that God has not saved you that you've not experienced His saving grace through faith in Christ. The book of James says this too. It says in chapter 3, it says, With the tongue we bless our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's all very similar to Jesus' words, you will recognize them by their fruits. You also recall that phrase, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You might claim to know Christ and claim to have been transformed by His grace. But if all we hear from your mouth reflects a salt pond, then maybe He has not made you a new creation in Christ. The way you speak must demonstrate that he has renewed your heart. It is this very passage in James, sitting on a Sunday morning in my high school Sunday school class, that God used to change the way I talked. It was just this word, uh, out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And I understood in that moment, my brother was teaching the class that I had to change the way I talked. And so it's no coincidence that, James, uh, that David brings up this, his mouth here and let the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. He brings up this most basic area of Christian living it really, really is a big deal. He 
Understanding this, he prays that his speech and words would conform to the pattern described in God's word. That's one area. He mentions another here. He says, the meditation of my heart, that's referring to his thought life. Heart, uh, I've mentioned, and you know, perhaps that is not a reference just to your emotions, to a Hebrew and to, uh, to David. The heart was the center of, of not only your emotions, but also your thoughts and your decisions. It was the cockpit, uh, the control center, the, the place uh, that uh, everything came from. And, and so when the Holy Spirit is in the cockpit controlling our emotions, our, our thinking and our decision making and our emotions, things tend to go well. But when our sin nature gains control of the cockpit, our, our emotions tend to go haywire, our, our minds dwell on sinful thoughts, and we make poor decisions that lead to sin. And this is why, friend, the door to the cockpit has to be guarded. You are the air marshal. And this says nobody gets in the cockpit but the Spirit of God. No one can fly the plane but the Holy Spirit. And it's described like this in Proverbs 4. <coughs> Where did Proverbs 4 go? Rats. Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Again, that control center. It's not your physical organ. It's the way you think, where everything comes from. Keep that heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life, everything. Life's issues flow from the cockpit. So you stay on your toes and you guard that door and don't let anybody break into the cockpit and fly the plane except the Spirit of God. Allow His Word to infiltrate your mind and transform the way you think and Paul says this in Colossians 3.1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek or set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In this familiar text, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Boy, let that Holy Spirit into your mind. Let Him into the cockpit. And suddenly you're flying a different plane. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then this one that we often overlook. But Philippians 4.8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Hey, you want to watch a movie? Oh, I'd love to watch a movie. What would you like to see? Oh, it really doesn't matter. As long as it's honorable, just, and pure, and lovely, and commendable, and if there's anything morally excellent in it, if there's anything worthy of praise, then I'm okay. So you'll be watching Andy Griffith again. <laughs> Citizens are raised. Now, if that's not commendable, I don't know what is. Understanding this, that this is a key area. David prays that his thoughts, his meditations would conform to the pattern of the word. A second, essential, and another practice. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Acceptable is a term often applied to sacrificial animals without blemish, blameless, pure. Let them be uh, acceptable to you, Father, holy. Uh, finally, we respond to the word in these first five ways and one more to look at here. We respond to the word, uh, written revelation, totally dependent on a person. And that person is our rock and redeemer, Jesus Christ. If you'd look at verse 14 with me one more time. Notice the end of, of where he winds up. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, 
O Lord, O Yahweh is the word represented there, my rock and my redeemer. Of course, we looked at the word rock back in Psalm 18 and described uh, the significance of that word. It can refer to a high cliff, uh, some rocky crag or a large boulder like this one, a place to hide behind, a place to seek protection from the enemy, a place to find shelter in the shadow of the rock. Uh, Rock can also refer to a rock you stand on, and in that sense it means a firm foundation under your feet, a place that gives us sure footing. That's probably what David has in mind here, this sense of a, a solid foundation under his feet. The Lord forms this rock-solid foundation of his life. And the Word of God is what gave David sure footing in the valley of the shadow of death where he frequently found himself. The Lord, David completely dependent on the Lord, his rock, to be his solid ground under him. Also completely dependent on the Lord is his Redeemer. And this term we saw in our study of the book of Ruth uh, earlier this year, we recall Boaz was the Redeemer who uh, bought Naomi and Ruth out of their indebtedness. Uh, Boaz's husband was likely to have sold the land, the family land, to another relative. And Boaz, uh, a relative of Naomi, bought the land, purchased it back for her in her name. He paid their debt. And in a similar way, David's relying on the Lord to pay his debt, to redeem him from the indebtedness of his sin, which we would eventually see fulfilled in Jesus on the cross, who satisfied the righteous requirement of the law, which was death. David completely depended on the Lord as his redeemer. This is how we respond to the word. Trusting in the Lord Christ beneath our feet and trusting in His payment for sin on the cross to pay our debt. So writing about this many years ago, one person said, as all our prayers and all our holy endeavors and abilities to serve God must be furnished to us by our Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ, so also every other grace And the acceptance of our persons and services must come through Him. We respond to Revelation, the Word completely dependent on a person, Christ our Rock and our Redeemer. So David's described uh, how God is revealed in general revelation or natural revelation, that is to say creation. And then he went on to describe how God is revealed in special revelation, that is to say, his word. And now he brings it all together and describes how we would, should respond to that written revelation uh, to the word. And he's mentioned six ways to us in these last three verses of Psalm 19. With, with the right posture, we come uh, not sitting over the word, but sitting under the word. We come to it as a servant would respond to his master. And we come accepting this proclamation that David's made about our spiritual condition that nobody, who can discern his errors? And we come knowing that we're blind and must need the word to illumine what the Lord would cleanse from us. And we come aware of this deathly progression that sin often takes this this step downward into great transgression and we're aware and careful and and we we ask the Lord to stop it at the very first step and of course prayer is involved in all of this asking God to enable us and and we allow it to get so far into our lives that it conforms our, our very practices, our speech and our minds in particular and then again we do this all dependent on Christ our rock and the one who redeems us
So, Savior, we come to the end of this psalm, and like David, we confess the inability to see uh, how sin has affected us. Oh, we are so competent that we understand ourselves. So competent and confident that we think we know what's going on. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that your word would reveal to us just the true nature of our condition. We need your word. We need it to shine its light on the areas of sin that you would cleanse from us and the, the ways you would have us walk in. We want to see that and do that today. Please, God, let us, let us see what needs to be cleaned off the windshield and, and what we should engage in to please you, Heavenly Father. Lord, do this all through your Son, Jesus. And take it to the level that our our very specific practices are are just changed. Namely, how we think, oh, how we struggle with our thought, our, our train of thought. Especially in this age of disinformation and confusion. Oh God, we need clear minds that are informed by your word. Please renew our minds as Paul describes in Romans 12 too. And God, may our speech glorify you in this age of hate we live in where it is a a nurtured skill to put someone down. Let us be starkly different. Shine as lights in the universe in this dark world. And again, we ask for your grace to do this Jesus, we ask this in your precious name. Amen.